Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our fifth lesson of... What are we doing? Huh? The Art of Marriage. Excellent. All right. Lesson five, title is Sacred Space. No Trespassing, Defining Marriage's Boundaries. Let's begin with the learning exercise. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to page 116 in the book. Page 116, and I'm going to ask you not to write the answer in the book, but write it on a piece of paper, and then do what with it? Fold it up and put it in page. There you go. Ah, you know the drill. Put it in page 136. These are the western walls of learning exercises. Again, you can write it on a piece of paper, fold it up, and then stick it in page by page 136. What is the question, though? Take a look at 116. Other than sexual relations, what activities should be defined as intimate and should remain exclusively between spouses? Question make sense? Define on this, uh, with this exercise, hello. Define um, what you consider to be intimate activities that should remain exclusive between spouses. Write down some ideas. Write down as many or as few as you'd like. Write on a piece of paper. You won't be asked to share your answer. Write whatever is your honest uh, take on it. Write it down. Fold it up. Put it in the book, page 136. Let's give another 60 seconds for the exercise. Um, should that be defined as intimate and should remain exclusive between spouses? Perhaps. I'm not, I'm not going to... Depends you, on how you get into an Exactly. So you, you, you guys... Uh, yeah. This is just for you. All right, another 30 seconds. Tick-tock. 116. Do you have a book? If you, you could, there's, there's like another one. You good? Okay. Oh, there you go. <laughs> JLA books. That are good. It's not a, all right. You can write that down. Yeah. Again, write your answers on a piece of paper, fold it up, and put it on page 136 in your book. Okay, let's, um, let's schmooze. Now... We schmooze. Hey, good to see you. All right, by raise of hand, let me know if you think these are appropriate activities to share with someone other than your spouse. Again, I want to make sure the question is clear. By raise, I'm going to go through a, a few, several activities. You tell me by raise of hand if you think that these are appropriate to share with somebody other than your spouse or significant other. Okay, you ready? Business lunch. It's, no, raise your hand if you, if you believe it's okay. Business lunch. Okay. Out of town business trip. Okay. Sharing a hotel room on that business trip. <laughs> I saw that. Huh? Yes, yes, that's what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch, okay, good. Watching, or not good, it, it is what it is. Watching a movie, we're just, we're just talking some stuff out. Watching a movie with a neighbor while your spouse is out of town. Okay. Um, socializing, that's kind of general. Okay. Hugging. Okay, kissing. Oh, okay, all right. Huh? Huh? There's a qualifier. 
within kissing. Yeah. Depends on which nation, which country is involved in the kiss. <laughs> okay. I'm kidding. Flirting. Does it, flirting. Okay. Dancing. Okay. Spending time together alone. That's vague. Okay. Often. Good. That's it. I'm, I'm through my list. Huh? Is it? Is it? You'll, I think at the end of the class, the list will become a little bit clearer as far as why these were mentioned. So often these aforementioned activities are not considered activities that should be exclusively shared between spouses. And indeed, a lot of the responses were to that effect. Um, what is the difference then between sharing these activities that I mentioned with your spouse or with somebody else? Expectations. Okay. In other if 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 these activities are not shared exclusively with your spouse, so then wherein lies the distinction between when these are shared with the spouse and when they're not? Does, that, does the question make sense? Right. It's the same activity, but it's not exclusive. Frequency, passion, in, intensity, intimacy, boundaries. I don't. I don't I, if we define, so here's, here's where I'm going with this. If we define the space of marriage as that which occurs exclusively between spouses, right? So the space of marriage is things that, that occur only between the two parties. So the more that is shared with others, the less space we have for the marriage. Does that make sense? Does that make sense what I'm saying? I'll say it again. If the space of our relationships are defined as that which we share exclusively with the other. So the more activities or whatever it is we share with others, the less space we have for that exclusive relationship. So here is my question to the end. It's a loaded question. But here's the question that, I'm, that, that I'll put out there. Would it perhaps be healthy and ideal to expand our relationships to include other exclusive activities? Does that make sense? to bring other activities that we might otherwise more casually share with others to bring those into the exclusive realm of the relationship. So if we see our relationships as sacred space, perhaps shouldn't we be trying to expand as broadly as possible that space to gain more points of exclusive contact as opposed to diminishing and diluting that space? Make sense? Okay. So the question, the main question that we're going to deal with is as follows. Should our marriages be exclusive only in terms of physical intimacy? Or should there be other areas of exclusivity? And to what extent is exclusivity necessary and reasonable in a relationship? These are the questions we're going to, we're going to deal with. So it's a topic that in my opinion is very rarely discussed in relationships and marriage, but it's without a doubt one of the most important as we'll see throughout the class. Alright, you ready? Let's, uh, let's get into the meat and potatoes. So to learn the Jewish take on all of this, let's first look at a related topic, which is infidelity. You'll see why it's related soon. Infidelity is when the most basic sacred space of a relationship, which is exclusive intimacy, is violated. 
Right? We're talking about the space is the shared, intimate, exclusive space of relationship. So infidelity is when that sacred, the most sacred space, physical intimacy, is violated or compromised. So let's put our discussion about expanding the borders of the relationship aside for a moment, and let's talk about defending the basic borders. A relationship and marriage is built piece by piece, slowly over years. We all know this to be true. You, even if there's love at first sight, to, to build a, rela- a relationship is like a structure. A marriage certainly is like a structure, like a building that you build piece by piece, slowly over time. But like a building, you ever see those buildings when they, ever see those videos when they, where they bring down a building? And you think about how long it took to build, how quickly it can come down, the same thing is true in relationships. That which takes years to build, to create, can come crumbling down in a few moments. And of course, one of the causes, or one of the main causes of bringing down a relationship very quickly is infidelity, adultery. So besides for adultery being prohibited by Jewish law, it's a Torah prohibition, and violating the sanctity, the spiritual sanctity of marriage, it has, on a very practical level, devastating effects on a relationship. Um, You know, you take a look at studies. Studies today show that when infidelity strikes, the marriage has a 65% chance of divorce. It's a high number. So not that it's a death sentence, not that it's guaranteed, but it's a very, very harsh blow. Let's take a look at what the Talmud says about this. Um, let's begin with text number one. You can find it on page 117. Rebecca, would you like to begin? Now we had the first part of this text in our second lesson. So the Talmud says something interesting. The Hebrew word for worthy is zachu. Zachu, very, a very vague term. Like zocheh, zachu. They are worthy. So when they're worthy, God resides, resides among them. When they're unworthy, a fire consumes them. What does it mean worthy and unworthy? What do you think that means? What's worthy, what's unworthy? According to the most basic commentary, according to Rashi, Rashi explains that what is worthy, faithful. In lesson two, we explain that they're connected, there's oneness of soul and body and emotion and intellect. But on a very basic level, what the Talmud is referring to is fidelity, faithfulness in a marriage. Husband and wife that are worthy, that are faithful, so God is there. If they're unworthy, if there's, if there's infidelity in the marriage, then a fire consumes them, which means there's, uh, there's a toxic energy that is introduced in the relationship that can threaten to extinguish the love that existed in that relationship previously. And again, it's a love that perhaps was built carefully and slowly and methodically over many years. But infidelity has the ability, has the, 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 the potential, the power to wipe everything out. And, you know, to cite another study, I mean, study show, it's not... It's, I'm sure it's nothing you haven't heard before, but infidelity is the number one cause, um, cited as the number one reason for divorce. Here's the question, though. Take a look at 117 right there, where it says question for discussion. You know, sometimes we think that, okay, that's if the other person finds out. So if they find out that I'm fooling around, then it's not a good idea. But the question here is, is if an act of infidelity always remains a secret, 
Will it be harmful to a marriage? What do you think? Yes. Why? One person is part of the two people. So one person is part of the two. Okay, good. So it's got it's got to have an effect. What? Let's flesh it out. Though what kind of what kind of effect? So secrecy. Guilt is good. Yeah, yeah. What do you have? What do you have? Say it again. I like, we use a term the other night called emotional leakage. Leakage? Leakage. Where your emotions are not, they're going elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about emotional affairs as well a little bit later. But definitely there is a lot of energy that's being directed in other directions. Okay, so you know what? Hold that idea. Hold that idea, because the next section will will be focusing on the causes of infidelity. But let's. You're saying that that's, that's only the manifestation of a deeper issue. So whether or not the manifestation is seen or not, there's still that underlying root issue that needs to be addressed. I, I, I like that point. Any other ideas? Why, why, is, why is infidelity toxic whether or not it comes out? I want to share another idea. King David writes in Psalms, Eretz, I, I, I love Emmis. This is one of my favorite uh, quotes from the book of Psalms. Emes or emet mi eretz titzmach, which means truth sprouts from the ground. And the visual is you can try to bury the truth, but it always, like vegetation, it will always break through the surface. It will always come up. But again, the question here was if it always remains a secret. So my argument would be good luck. Good luck. In fact, the Talmud in Sota says, in Tracted Sota says, that a person tries to commit a transgression and do something they shouldn't be doing in secret. Hashem, God kind of arranges things that at some point, somehow, some way, either directly or indirectly, the truth always comes out. So, whether it's part of the natural, uh, whether it's part of nature, whether it's a more direct uh, divine intervention, or whether nature is divine intervention, which is another, another topic, bottom line is, very rarely will something actually remain a secret for all time. But even if it would, there are many destructive elements to it. As we said before, I'm going to mention the ones that I, that I wrote down. There's, and these are things that were mentioned before. It's introduced into the relationship the ideas of lying and cheating, disrespect, right? guilt, and physical and emotional leakage, for, for lack of a better term. So infidelity can literally devastate a relationship. Not that it's impossible to recover and to perhaps even grow stronger from that experience, but in and of itself, in and of itself, it is devastating. All right, so we know this. We know how destructive infidelity is. We know that affairs bring down marriages. 65% of marriages that have affairs and then divorce is the number one cause of divorce, as stated, etc. So we know, we know how destructive it is. But many of us, even those in this room, perhaps, think that it's not relevant to us in our relationships. Um, you know, the famous last words are, that's someone else's problem, not mine. Right? It's someone else's problem. It's not, it's not my, I don't, I'm not dealing with it. It's somebody else's. So in a way, it's a beautiful, it, it, you know, on one level, it's a beautiful thing to think. Because it's, it's, it's basically 
an expression, if somebody says, an affair not in my relationship, not in our marriage, that's not... So, that's, it's lovely to think that. Why is it lovely to think that? Because it means that you have faith in your love and in your spouse, and it certainly beats the alternative, which is, oh, baby, am I concerned about this? I mean, we would like, certainly like to think that, no way, not going to happen, never going to happen, not in my, not in my, not in my relationship. But the, but the truth is that this perspective is also, it's lovely, but it's also very naive. Because the reality is that infidelity is everywhere, and it's only becoming more prevalent in today's day and age. Not that... Not to say that back in the day it wasn't prevalent and perhaps it was more prevalent, but in our times, infidelity is a reality and a very and and on some level, I mean, it depends how you define common, but a somewhat common reality. Let's take a look at text number two. This is uh, I, I, I like the title of this from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Naomi Schaefer Riley, the young and the restless: Why infidelity is rising among twenty-somethings. Let's take a look at uh, a text two on page one eighteen. How we're taking away. 90% now that's an interesting statistic right there at the end. More than it's one survey, but it it claims you know surveys are always low. Who do they ask, right? Uh, so more than ninety percent of people believe that cheating on one's spouse is always wrong. Okay, that's it's good to believe that. But at the end of the day, we have here you know uh, folks under thirty, ninety percent of married men, thirty percent of married women. It's increasing between ninety one and two thousand and six. By now, I, I would imagine the the rise is still going up. So we have various studies. Here you go. You can you can see the the visualization on the board. Here's uh, here's the point. The point is that if it, we know this. We know infidelity is a reality. It's a, it's, it happens in relationships. It happens in marriage. Um, and too many people with dreams of happily ever after and eternal fidelity are straying and cheating. We need to look at the question. We need to ask the question, why? I'm not going to ask the question, why is it you know increasing 20%, 45%? That's not really... There's a learning interaction number two. I'm going to skip that. What I want to get into is the root causes for infidelity. And perhaps we can come up with, uh, with some ideas here today, tonight. Let's take a look at page 120. And you see on the left-hand column, there are factors, various factors. I want you to, to take a moment, take 60 seconds, and circle whether you believe that the factor listed in the left-hand column is very significant, to causing, to causing people to be unfaithful in marriage, somewhat significant or not at all significant. Okay, the first factor is emotional dissatisfaction in marriage. Very somewhat, 
or not at all significant. Sexual dissatisfaction, human nature to seek something more different, circumstance, selfishness, other, you can fill in something else. Uh, please take, again, 60 seconds, circle some answers, but just please, uh, please do it so that we can discuss it. You may begin. All right, 10 seconds. Going down to the wire. All right, let's discuss. Let's, um, okay, what did you have for very significant? Anybody want to share? Emotional dissatisfaction. Emotional dissatisfaction. What else? Sexual dissatisfaction. What else? Selfishness was very significant? Okay, good. What else? Circumstance. Circumstance. Did anybody have, I want to see if everybody had, any, had one of them as very significant. Did, ev- huh? Did Who had emotional dissatisfaction as a very significant factor? That's, pretty, that's a pretty large percentage. Who had sexual dissatisfaction as very significant? Okay, a little bit less. Who had the human nature always to seek something more different? Okay, a few. Circumstance, a few, selfishness, a lot, okay, okay. In crunching the data, this is called InstaCrunch. You have it, for that? Huh? You There's an algorithm. I, can't, I, I would share it with you, but I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to make some money off this. Um, can you guys, you know what, if you guys can move down, we can have two together right there. Yeah? You guys, if you guys, yeah. Slide over one, we get two together. All right. Two together. No problem. (laughs) All right. Um, So what we have here in crunching the data is like this. Emotional dissatisfaction was in our limited, in our case, uh, in our, what do you call it, focus group, was the number one, the number one cited Factor for infidelity and affairs. This emotional disaster, emotional. All the hands went up. Maybe I asked. You know what? We're not. We're not getting into distinction at this point. I asked the question. Look, if you want to, uh, we can go through it again. But I think I, I got a good sense of what's going on, of what what the answers were. Emotional satisfaction was definitely number one, followed closely by circumstance. In, there's no, I don't have any other study. I, this just happened. This all happened. I'm not going to make the arc disappear. But this, oh, this just right happened. This just, we just, I'm not that good. We just, um, this just happened. We just did this exercise. When I asked who had very significant, who had it for emotional dissatisfaction very significant, almost every hand went up. When I asked sexual dissatisfaction, mm, five to seven went up. Human nature to always see something different. I had three or four circumstances. I had a, um, I had also a low number. Selfishness. We had most most of the crowd. 
Okay. Here's the, here's, here's the point that I want to bring out. And you'll see for a moment why I believe this is an absolutely critical exercise. Again, the exercise is to figure out, to try to determine what factors, what causes infidelity. Human nature, this is a very important idea, is that when we see a problem, we like to think that we are immune to the problem. Agree or disagree? Okay. Again, human nature is that when you see a problem, you'd like to think, you'd love nothing more than to think, to know that you, you are immune to the problem. <coughs> to justify this sense of security, which I might call a false sense of security, we create rationales for why the problem happened to somebody else and why it simply won't happen to us. This is a psychological idea. Again, there's a problem. We don't want to believe that it could happen to us. So we say, oh, I know why that happened. I know why that person had the affair. It's because in their marriage, there must have been emotional dissatisfaction, sexual dissatisfaction, selfishness. Words, we, have it, we, have, we can peg it on something. We can put a reason. We can put it in a box. So the more we compartmentalize a problem, the more in control we are which is right where we want to be. We want to be in control. We want to know, we want to really know that our relationship is impervious to it because we're going to do the things that it takes to make sure that the reasons that are causing infidelity aren't going to exist in our relationship. Make sense? Right? We're, going to, we're going to block it out. I'll give you an example when it comes to crime. It's a very, very, it, this is going to bring up questions that are completely off topic. Hold the questions that are off topic. Let's, I'm, just, I'm saying this just to, to, to bring an illustration. A crime happens, a horrific crime. Shooting spree, a terrorist attack. The first thing we as human beings want to know is, what's the first thing we want to know? Motive. Huh? Motive. motive. Why do we want to know the motive? Because it's the hardest one to know. No. Why do we want to know the motive? It makes us feel safer. Why do we want to believe that the, that the Nazis and all the Germans were, were, were murderers and, and terrible people that, that, had, that were so twisted in their morals? Why do we want to believe that? That's right. It makes us feel, makes us feel safer. Because we can, we can box it in that Germany, that happened there, crazy times... Don't know how it happened, but that but it can't happen again. It's not going to happen again because what are the odds? You're going to have millions and millions of people that are so twisted. But to, to, to understand that the truth is more nuanced, that you're not dealing with millions and millions of twisted people, but that people can fall in line given the right factors. Average people can do horrific things given the right circumstance is much more painful and scary. And so we don't want to hear that. We want to hear that the fellow that shot up whatever it was had a deranged childhood, right? Is a terrorist or something that we can box and put it away and say, that explains it. Thank God not everyone's like that. It's not going to happen, right? That's crazy. Somebody that's absolutely out of their mind. And we just have to be careful that people that are in that situation are getting the right help and locked away from society and they'll all be safe. Because we want to be safe and in control. To hear that regular person, average person, and they just had a cup, that's scarier. Illustration makes sense? Let's bring it. Circumstances, 
is. I'm not saying there are situations where there is many times, perhaps most of the time, it's you're dealing with somebody deranged, and there is a reason that you can peg it. But the reason why we want to know why did it happen? What was the motive? Is to make ourselves feel safer. It's about us. When we can, tie, when we can put it in a box. You know, question, why did the Holocaust happen? Ilya Wiesel, there's a story told. A high school student asked him once, how, how, how could the Holocaust have happened? So his response was, if I gave you an answer, would it help you sleep better tonight? He's like, why do you want an answer? Be able to put it away in a box and put it on the shelf? I understand it now. That's why it happened. To make ourselves feel better. So when it comes to infidelity, and we have all these reasons, we would love nothing more than to feel, than to believe, that infidelity is caused by any of these factors. Emotional dissatisfaction. That, that, was, the, that was the biggest one here in, this, uh, in, in our class. Emotional dissatisfaction. So the reason why that person had the first is because they were emotionally dissatisfied. And it's not that... I'm not saying that that's not a factor. But that's not the factor in a particular case. But, our, but we would love nothing more than to believe that if you only had emotional satisfaction, in other words, if we can control emotional satisfaction in our relationships, we can control the problem of infidelity. It makes us feel safer, more in control. So, Joanne, when you said before that, that an affair is... Is just a symptom of something that's deeper, that's deeper beneath the surface. We would love to. Th- we would. I'm not saying that that's not true, but I'm saying we love to think that we need. It's almost like we need to feel like that, because if we didn't, we'd be scared. Because if you can't, if it's if if we can't label it, so then. Remember, so I can have happy marriage, emotional satisfaction, sexual satisfaction, etc. And still face the possibility of an affair? I don't, I don't want to live like that. So it's, we, we love to have a reason. We put it in a box. We put it away. And we'll come up with a reason. We would rather have a reason, no matter what the reason. If it doesn't fit into a reason, we'll modify the reason. It's like the story with the fellow, the king who walks into the forest. This is off topic, but a, but a story that, that relates to this concept. Yeah, there's a king that walks into a forest, and he sees in the forest, on every tree, there's an arrow shot right at the center of the bullseye. And it's like, it's amazing. Who is the archer, the local archer, that is so proficient that every bullseye has an arrow right in the middle? Tret asks everyone in the forest, who shoots bows and arrow? Who shoots? Who's the archer here? It's this young boy, this 14-year-old boy who's, who practices archery. He says, I have to meet this child. I have to meet this kid. He meets the child. He says, tell me your secret. He says, no, big, no problem. Here's the secret. I take an arrow, I shoot it against the tree, and when, it's, when it hits, I draw the circle around it. <laughs> Simple. Problem solved. That was easy. So here's the point. Here's the point. The point is, we, we, we need to have, we need to put it into a box, a circle. We need, to, we, we need to make sense of it. So we come up with reasons. We love to have reasons. So we simplify affairs. We simplify infidelity. He wasn't happy. She wasn't happy. The partner wasn't responding to their needs. The marriage was doomed. I could see it. It was a bad problem. Okay. And we're, we're profoundly afraid to chalk up infidelity to something more capricious, which might leave us vulnerable. But it's not true. It's not true. The data knows it, and deep down we know it too. The truth is that a person that is happily married, happily married, can also 
have an affair. The Torah knows this also, and the Torah has an unbelievably honest and unflinching take on the root cause of infidelity. Anybody want to venture a guess what Torah says is the cause of infidelity? Nope. Nope. Way simpler than that. Way simpler. Any other guesses? It's very simple. We are sexual creatures. That's it. Simple. If you want to see where this idea is developed, let's take a look at Scripture and at, at the Talmud. All right, take a look. We're on page one twenty-one, text three. Let me give you the context of this text. Let me give you the context. The setting is the beginning of the era of the Second Temple, the Second Holy Temple that was in Jerusalem, built in the in the sixth century. Sorry, it was built in the maybe 5th century, 5th or 4th century BCE, before the common era. So we're dealing with 2,500 years ago. The Jewish people had just begun to return to the land of Israel from the Babylonian exile. And the, uh, the leaders of the Jewish people, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezra was a leader, Nehemiah was a prophet, they are appalled that some Jews are still serving idols, which the prophet said was the cause of the, temple, of the first temple's destruction. So again, the, the gap in between the first and second temple was, anybody know the gap? How, long, how many years was there in between the, first, the end of the first temple and the beginning of the second temple? 70. Close. 70. 70 years. 70 years in between. So, the, the destruction of the first temple is still, the memory is still there. Everyone knows that they were all exiled, they're all coming back now. And to the absolute consternation of the leaders, of the Jewish people then, there are people who are still serving idols. When the prophet said the reason why the first temple is destroyed is because of idolatry. They're serving idols again. Take a look at what happens next. According to the Talmud, trying to take it away. They cried aloud to God, Nehemiah. The leaders did. They, they cried out to God when they saw that people were still serving idols. Continue. This is the Talmud's analysis. What was their cry? Rav, others say Rabbi Hanan, said this was their cry. Whoa, whoa. It is this temptation for idolatry that has caused the destruction of the holy temple the burning of the sanctuary, the killing of all the righteous, and the expulsion of Israel from their land. And it is still dancing among us. You have surely given it to us so that we may earn reward through resisting it. We want neither it nor the reward it potentially brings us. They fasted three days and three nights, whereupon the temptation for idolatry was surrendered to them. It came forth from the Holy of Holies, appearing as a young, fiery lion. Thereupon the prophet said to Israel, This is the evil desire for idolatry departing from our midst. The sages said, Since this is a time of grace, let us pray to be rid of the temptation for sexual transgression. They prayed, and this temptation too was handed over to them. The temptation said to them, Understand, if you kill me, the world will be destroyed. They imprisoned it for three days. They then searched the entire land of Israel for a fresh egg, but there was none. They said, What shall we do now? Shall we kill it? The world would then cease to exist. 
Shall we pray that we retain the positive path and destroy the negative path? Heaven will not grant path. They blinded its eye and released it. It helped in, inasmuch as temptation no more entices people to commit incest. That's what the Talmud says. Yeah? Huh? Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of. There's a lot of things that need. Where do we start? All right. So paragraph one. There's a lot of stuff that needs explanation. Let's let's let's. Not, huh? We got to. No. Hold on. Let's. Here, here's what. Here's how I want to do this. Number one. Let's understand. Huh? Lego my. Lego my. Yeah. Exactly. What I go. There ain't no I go. Um, let's. Let let let's. Let, I'm going to paraphrase what just happened. Deal with some questions and then get to what's the point of, of all of this. That, why we're bringing it up. To paraphrase, there is this, this say, the leader's sense that there is this drive for idolatry that is out of control. This bur- now, can you relate to idolatry? Do you really want to serve an idol? Or did you wake up this morning and be like, oh, i got to serve an idol? Well, no, no, no. but tip, but th- that that particular form, I, I agree with you. But that particular form of idolatry, creating a little statue and bowing down to it, and offering incense and sacrifice to it, are we all tempted to do that? We're not tempted to do that. Says the Talmud, it was slayed at that moment in time. Then they said, oh hey, this works. So let's let's deal with the next big temptation: idolatry and improper sexual transgression. So. At that point, at that point, things got things got a little bit sticky. The temptation says you get rid of the drive, right? The sexual drive. That's it. No more procreation. Done. And indeed, when I was in prison, no eggs for three days. What should we do? We can't keep some and destroy. And as you can't, it's either there, or it's not there. And if it's there, it. So what happens? They blinded its eyes, so it helps for incest, but that doesn't mean that there is no incest anymore. It means much less than it was. Okay. Now, did this story happen? Are we to understand this literally, metaphorically? Most commentaries say it's more, um, it's more of a vision that the prophet Nehemiah saw, as opposed to something that actually occurred with various spirits, etc. But the concept. That we can extract from this, I believe, is clear. What do you think? What do you think uh, the point is? What central message do you take from this? That might be relevant to our discussion. Question for the class. Any message? Huh? Well, okay, so it seems like this evil desire for idolatry. So that's kind of like a built-in desire. Good. Yes. And so you can sort of slide it out in its entirety... But it sounds like then you, you, you get rid of a lot of other stuff. That you if you get rid of the idolatry, good. So idolatry is done, you're fine. But if you get rid of the other drive, right? Yeah. Sexual drive. You, you're, that's not good. That's not going to work for appropriation. Right? That, right, it's not, yeah. So it sounds like there's like this tightrope block. You know, you can sort of, you can't just slice it out with a big carving knife kind of thing. Good. But people would have sex if they were painful, have children. Say it again? If people wanted to have children, they would have sex if it was painful. If they wanted to have children. I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. 
that, well, hold on. Okay. So, so you're saying that people, the human beings, have the ability to altruistically understand the value of bringing children to the world, and therefore are willing to, t- to make sacrifice, etc., for having children. So even if the temptation, right, the, uh, the sexual desire was gone, was no longer in the world, people would still figure out a way how to do it, even if, they're not, even if they don't desire it. I hear that argument. That's why the story, if we understand the story literally, so you're going to run into a lot of questions. But if you understand, what's the point of the story? What's the point of the, I think Lori hits, I think Lori hit it on the head. What's the point of the story? The point is simply that we are creatures that have the drive for sex. Simple. And that it's not cut out of our system. And it's, you can't cut it halfway. I think the key point is, shall we pray that we retain half and destroy half? Heaven will not grant half. You know what that means? You can't, you can't say, I'm only going to be, my drive is only going to be for that. For that which is healthy, that which is appropriate. But not, not, not anywhere else. You can try. You can try. But the drive is still there. You cannot, God doesn't miraculously give us the gift and say, you're not going to be attracted to anybody else once you get married. You're not going to have any desires once you commit. doesn't happen. We are creatures that have that temptation and desire. Torah recognizes it. Torah recognizes the force, the power of that, of that drive and desire. And Torah gives us the tools in dealing with it. The point is that no one is impervious to the sin of temptation. No one is impervious. To, sorry, not the sin of To the temptation of sin. Temptation of sinning in a sexual way. Let's take a look. Does it make sense how we got that from the story? Yes? No? Yes. We have, we have a, a confident yes. I'm going to go with that. Again, this, the point of the story is that there is this drive. We can't, we're not going to cut it out. Wholesale, we can't cut half. It's impossible for it to be retain the positive half, destroy the negative half. It is, it is what it is. It's a drive that we have, and the message is that each of us has it, and it's not going anywhere. And therefore, each of us, no matter how good, here's the point that we're getting to. No matter how good the relationship is, how happy the marriage is, how emotionally connected we are, how physically connected we are, a human being is still susceptible to temptation and to infidelity. Take a look at text number four. Huh? Huh? You read ahead. Text four. (laughs) Bobby, take it away. Some captive women were ransomed and brought to Nehardia. Yep. They were taken to the second story of the house of Rav Alran, the pious, and the ladder was removed from beneath them. Now he's referred to as the pious for a reason. Continue. As one of the women passed by, the hatch that served as the passageway between the two stories, the light shone through the hatch. Rab Aram seized a very heavy ladder, and he alone lifted it, set it up, and proceeded to ascend. When he had gone halfway up the ladder, he steadied his feet and bellowed in a loud voice, A fire at Rab Aram's! The rabbis came, running to help extinguish the fire. Seeing that there was no fire, and understanding what Rav Aram was about to do, they reproved him. We are ashamed of you, said he to them. Better that you be ashamed of Aram in this world, than you be ashamed of him in the next. What do you think the point is? (laughs) He staged a personal intervention. 
Right? That's what happened. Just to clarify the story, he says, I got a fire at my house. So they all come running, where's the fire? It's like, I'm on fire, baby. <laughs> no, that's, according to the commentaries, really, that's what he meant. He meant that he was, he was alluding to the fiery passion to sin that he had, that he was experiencing. Huh? Yeah, so, right? Uh, oh, 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 this is great. Oh, we got to get back to Homer. Okay, okay, one second. We'll get there in a second. So, so here's the point. The point is, what, uh, so here's the question. So, the Talmud says that Rav Amram the pious was about to sin with this woman, with this captive in his house. The, the commentators say that the ladder took ten people to... It was a ladder that was so heavy that ten people were required to lift it. You know what they say when there's, you, know, you have the adrenaline rush, you could lift the car even. This, this, this fellow, he, Rav Amram, he, he lit moves the ladder, he's raised halfway up, stages the intervention, and that's it. And he, he needs help to, 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 to stop him from sinning. He had the presence of mind, even in that state, to ask for help, which is, it's, which is itself a lesson. But here's, here's my question. The Talmud is not sold at the checkout counters. You know why? Because the point of the Talmud is not to, dare, to air dirty laundry and say, oh, look who's having an affair with her, look who's fooling around, look who's this and that. That's not what the Talmud does. The Talmud is a book of the oral tradition, the oral law. And it's about instruction. It's about lessons. I mean, what lesson? Why, why are we airing Rav Amram's dirty laundry? That's the message. The message is, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how righteous you are, how much of a tzaddik you are, doesn't make a difference. If you're a human being, you have sexual temptations and drives doesn't make a difference who you are what the context is who you're married to how good the marriage is how not good the marriage is you are susceptible to infidelity that's it straight up the the temptation is there it's innate and if you want to deny it it's fine you want to blame other factors it may be true in that case it might have been that they were unhappy that the spouse was unhappy and the other one wasn't taking care of their needs and therefore they were looking outside the marriage could be but if we limit it to that experience, then it means that we're not facing the reality that everyone is susceptible to this. Torah recognizes this reality. And Torah says that each of us is susceptible. And so, while it's great to work on our relationships and make them stronger and healthier and be more conscious of the other's emotional needs and physical needs and try to make sure that our relationship and our marriage is as bulletproof, when I say bulletproof, I mean affair-proof as possible, by doing what we need to do to make sure that the other one is happy, that we're healthy, there's good communication, that is not the silver bullet. That is not the magic bullet that's going to ensure that no infidelity happens. Because that could all be in place. And you could be married to Rav Amram, the pious. And it still could be a, an infidelicious situation. Yeah. Was he being tempted? Because I look at this and it says, uh, I, the woman passed like, had her life. Nah. Oh, blame the victim. <laughs> she was walking around. She was walking around. He was... The point is not... You know they're up there. Exactly. Right? You don't even need to see her. Exactly. The mind works better than... Look, 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 look. Look, the, here's the point is not... I don't even want to get... The point is, why is the Talmud telling us this? The Talmud... The point of the Talmud is, know who... All, all human beings... All 
people have temptations straight up. That's it. And you want to say, no, it happened only because of this. We're safe because we're strong. That's great. You can believe that, and it's wonderful, and it's lovely to have faith in yourself and faith in the other, but a realistic approach, and Torah is all about reality, operating with reality. Reality is that God put these drives within us, and the more we acknowledge the drives, the healthier healthier we'll be. Torah, by the way, doesn't only tell us the problem. Torah gives us, Jewish law gives us the solution, which we're going to present in a second. But before we get to the solution, I want to mention Homer Simpson. Okay, <laughs> a, word for, a word from our sponsors, huh? At, we're going to leave, yeah, he, he's back up, he's fine. See? He's good, he's good. We're at the beginning of the clip again. Okay. <laughs> the point is not that he doesn't have a happy marriage with Marge, everything's great, but he's, okay. And by the way, we're not specifically talking about men or women. I hope I've been, I've been we've, we haven't even mentioned gender, not even once. Torah acknowledges that, that the drive is all human beings have this drive. And by the way, there's one more, before we get to the answer, and Judaism's, I'm going to call it an elegant answer to the problem of infidelity. I want to make one more point. The truth of our nature, our sexual nature, has another important implication. If we do find ourselves attracted to somebody else, or fantasizing about an infidel- infidelity or an affair, it doesn't mean that our relationship is doomed, broken, dysfunctional, or, un- or unhealthy. A person can think, if I'm thinking about somebody else, if I'm desiring this, that, and the other, it must mean, it must mean that there's something deeper in the relationship, there's something broken in the relationship, so you have a broken relationship, so I might as well do it. doesn't mean that. What would Judaism say? You're attracted to somebody else? What does that mean? Mazel tov. You're a human being. What it says in Tanya? Same, same technique that he writes in Tanya, the, author of, the author of Tanya writes in the book of Tanya. He says that person could, why is it that I'm praying and all these thoughts are coming to me? I must not be praying right. No, you must be human. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It doesn't mean just because you're desiring, you're thinking, you're fantasizing, doesn't mean that you're in a broken, unhappy, unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship. It means, it could be, I'm not saying it's not, People are, in ba- are, are not happy in the relationships. But it doesn't have to be that. It could also mean that you are a functioning, healthy human being. Not that, not that we should therefore act on it. But the point is, don't beat yourself up over it and pronounce the marriage and relationship dead. Instead, the healthy approach is to understand that this is, this is also part of human nature. And now let me take the opportunity to refocus my, my attention, my direction on my spouse. That's it. Simple. Make sense? So is that why there are all the safeguards that you're not supposed to Oh, yeah, that's what we're going to get to. That's exactly what we're going to get to. It just acknowledges that we are human, so rather than us having the... This is exactly where we're headed to. We're headed to understand what is Judaism's approach. Again, there are... Look, there could be any number of issues in a marriage and relationship that is that, that are driving somebody... But the underlying, but Judaism says, doesn't matter who you are, what the marriage is, it could be the healthiest. Look, Torah has no issue with people working on their marriage and having a healthy relationship, a happy marriage, 
and emotional connection, physical connection, working on all that stuff, that's great. Fantastic. And I don't mean, I'm not saying this again, I'm saying, really, that's good. And that's, that's, we should always be doing this. And until now, we've been talking about, until, until this lesson, how to improve the relationship, how to connect on a deeper level, all, all of that. And that's, and that's essential to relationship. The point is, all of that could be in place. And we're still human beings that have temptations and desires. And Torah acknowledges this reality. Doesn't say, oh, no, 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 it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. As long as you do X, Y, and Z, it's not going to Torah understands that these are realities, and Torah provides an elegant response to the problem. And here's a simple formula. I don't have it up on the board, but you'll, you can write it down. Motive. I sound like a crime, a crime novelist or whatever, scientist. Motive plus opportunity equals recipe for Disaster. Again, if you have the motive and then you have the opportunity, that could equal a recipe for disaster. So we certainly have the motive for infidelity. That's already been established, right? We have that drive, that, that temptation, that sexual drive, and it's not, it's not only, it's not like, you get married, oh, it's, as I said before, cut off. No, it's still there. So we certainly have the motive that's been established. What we have control over, though, is, to, is ensuring that the opportunity never presents itself. It's not. I'm going to tell you why it's not. You ready? But first, so, so far so good? We have a que- You're going to see how the question's answered. Again, what I'm saying is everyone has, everyone has, forget about the relationship, has nothing to do with the relationship. You're a human being, you have a motive. You have a motive for infidelity. All you need is the opportunity and, and all bets are off. Torah says make sure you, don't ha- you never have the opportunity. How's, how can you never have the opportunity? Here's how. Before we get there, here's how in a moment. Before we get there, let's read another text. Text number five. This is a good one. Text number five. Um, Howard, I believe we're up to you. 124. One should never intentionally test temptation. For David, king of Israel, did so without him fail. King David said to God, Master of the universe, why do we say in prayer the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, but not the God of David. He was trying to get into the uh, to the Amida, right? Yeah. Like, hey, Avram, like, hey, Israel, hey, Yaakov, hey, look, hey, David, let's get, let's get, uh, let's get, you know. Okay. He wanted to get into the, the first blessing of the Amida. So here's God's response. They were tested by me, but you were not, was the response. David replied, Master of the universe, test and try me. God responded, I will test you and even grant you a special privilege. I did not inform the patriarchs in the advance of nature of their tribe. Yet I inform you that I will test you in a matter of forbidden sexual relationship. So God says, and not only uh, you want to test, I'll give you a test. Not only that, I'm going to telegraph. I'm going to let you know what your test is going to be, which area it's going to be in, and and go for it. If you pass it, all right, we might let you in. If not, all right, we know what happened. Do we know what happened? Everybody know what happened? I don't get into. Basheva, she saw her bathing, and she was married, and before you know it, he, the husband was sent to the front, and the husband died in battle, and now she was a free woman, and David married her. Now, the Talmud says that whoever says that King David sinned is a fool. So if it's a sin, it might not be a sin. How, we, how is it not a sin? We're going to leave that up to all the commentaries to figure out. But certainly, certainly, if it's, even if it's not a sin, it's certainly a moral failure. At best. Here's the point. 
which is pretty serious. And it says, Somebody writes, My sins are before me always, King David writes. My moral failings are before me always. And he does, he, he repents. And, the, and Nathan the prophet comes and, and, and gives King David an elaborate example of somebody stealing somebody's flock. And that, it's a... King David and the son that is produced of this relationship passes away. Shortly after birth, that wasn't King Solomon, because Solomon was born later, but it's the same. Here's the point. Here, here's the question that I want to ask. What, what que- uh, you asked the question. What question do you have on this? What's the obvious question? Why did he ask for the test? Yeah. What's he thinking? Who says to God, go ahead and test me? You don't think God can figure out how to... I mean, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? Why would somebody go ahead and say, Oh, God, test me. I'm in you. Huh? But who? Like, why would you do that? And, and we're incredulous. We, it's almost like, what, why, why'd you do that? He, he, he didn't live up to that. Here's, here's my point. I can answer the question. I'm just going to tell you. you can ask, we can all ask ourselves the same question. Why do we put ourselves in temptation's way? Our question is, why does King David want himself to be tested? Why does he put himself in the way of a test? No. Why do we do that? Why do we put ourselves in the crosshairs, in the front, right in harm's way, every single day? Perhaps every single day, maybe every other day. We put ourselves in situations that test our ability to resist our natural sexual urges. All the time. Go through some of the things I mentioned before. Business trips. Late nights at the office, a kiss here, a glance there, a touch, a dinner, a movie, a flirtatious comment, a wink, a dance. We put ourselves in harm's way all the time. We have the motive that God gave us. Then we put ourselves and allow ourselves to be put into situations that give us opportunity to act. Or, don't ask for the test. There's ways to have dinner. There's dinner and then there's dinner. Oh, okay. So, so let me. So let. So good. I understand what you're saying. We're on the same page here. I'm going to present the Jewish. This is all the setup so far. I'm going to present now in a, in a moment the Jewish response. I said it's an elegant response to how to deal with this reality, and you'll see where how Jewish law defines the line that allows that ensures that there's no opportunity for any funny business. Because we know that if the opportunity presents itself and we have that drive, all bets are off. And we have that drive. So the key is to ensure that the opportunity never is, can never present itself. Otherwise, if we put ourselves in that opportunity, what we're saying is, it's like everyone does it. Everyone does it. You know, mazel tov. If everyone did it, everyone put, our, put themselves in that opportunity, in a situation where something could happen, and no one ever cheated. So we can say, oh, everyone's doing it, no one's cheating. But we say, everyone's doing it, and lots of people are cheating, so let me roll the dice. Gavaldic. Vegas would love those odds. I hear what you're saying by, by eliminating some of the trickier situations. Yes. Yes. Um, it's even the brakes on that slippery slope. But to kind of reverse the slope, you could also go to the extreme, and we can be broken. And we can have all kinds of surgeries done to women that are done. Who, forget women. What about men? Let's not, not worry about the women. What about the men? Well, Burkas. Why is Burkas only for the women? And that, that I don't know why. I don't, I don't know. Do it. I'm asking. Uh, Obviously, I don't do it. But I'm saying, 
but this, but the, but those cultures are doing it to the women. But I'm saying you do it to maybe there is a burqa for a man. I'm just not aware. They call it a murka. <laughs> a man burka. I haven't presented. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. In momentarily, I will tell you the line that Jewish the halacha draws. I, I think it's a brilliant line. That's what I think. Um, huh? Isn't it great? Isn't it great? All right. So basically, you're saying I was saying it was unrealistic. So you're saying that me going out to dinner with the man is fine. Just don't take him to the... I haven't said what I said yet. What am I going to say yet? I haven't, I haven't, I haven't presented it yet. I haven't presented it. Halacha, therefore, mandates, which is Jewish law, therefore, mandates that we never allow ourselves the opportunity for sexual impropriety to present itself in the first place. And how does it do that? Jewish law presents the prohibition called Yichud. Y-I-C-H-U-D. That is the prohibition that ensures that the opportunity for sexual impropriety never occurs. What is yichud? I'll give you the, the, the basic rundown. It means that a man and a woman who are not married are not allowed to be secluded together. That's it. Straight up. Straight up. A man and... Yichud. What's the yichud room? Think about it. We, chuppah, after the chuppah, husband and wife go to a yichud room. That's a secluded room. Yeah, we forget, yeah. It's a secluded room. The point is, there's a prohibition. In marriage, Yichud makes a marriage. Yichud could also break a marriage. Yichud is defined as the seclusion of a man and a woman who are not married to each other. Now, relative is fine, parents and, and siblings, it's fine. But a man and woman who are not married to be secluded together is a prohibition. Here are some details. I'm going to put some, some details on the board so you can see what's going on. Okay. Unmarried man and woman may not be alone in a secluded place. They may be alone if the door is unlocked and there is a realistic chance that somebody, somebody may enter. Does that make sense? Someone might like that. Huh? Right, I hear you, I hear you, but the point is, this is at least mitigating. Okay, so if, so then at that point, that doesn't work. Okay, good. You got to know, know thyself. Laws of yichud do not apply to parents and siblings, as I mentioned. In modern times, yichud is especially relevant in the workplace, for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. You got it? Can you see it? So again, a secluded place, let me give you some examples of a secluded place. You ready? Um, a closed room or a closed house, a quiet beach, a park or a forest. If you're alone in the forest and strolling, that is... I'm not in a room! Door's not locked! We're in nature! Sorry. Doesn't count. You know why it doesn't count? The opportunity is there. If there is a, an opportunity, if there is a remote opportunity that some monkey business can go, can go down, then you cannot be there with them. Him or her. Cannot be there. What about a car? A car is a problem. No, yeah, car pulled off the side of the road overlooking the city is problematic. It's absolutely problematic. I will not meet. And by the way, before I get to meet, it doesn't make a difference. The prohibition of Yichud 
doesn't make a difference who you are and what you are. Or how old you are. Or how attracted or unattracted you are to the other person. It doesn't make a difference. Think about the implication, by the way, for office workers, as I mentioned, lawyers, doctors, therapists. Because this never happens, right? Never happens in a professional setting. Never happens, right? We're not, we, can't, we can't actually, with a straight face, say it never happens. We know it happens. We know it happens all the time. So who are we fooling? We're fooling ourselves. Say that, no, in a professional, professional would never. But we don't, maybe we're not even fooling ourselves. We just straight up acknowledge that it happens. It, it work, vacation, it doesn't make a difference. What context? So you're saying you can be in a room, just can't have the door closed. Correct. So when I, if I meet with somebody from the opposite gender in, in my office right over there, I will never close the door. Can you close it and not lock it because it says unlocked? If there's not a realistic chance that somebody can walk in, then it doesn't make a difference. How would it work with therapists or doctors? That's not, that's, not a, that's, not, that's not a good... Whoa, whoa wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. For doctors, you have somebody else in the room. They have people in the room all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. They have... What they, whoa, wait, one second, one second. Doctors have people learning there all the time, right? They always have inter, uh, residents, interns, nurses. And it just... Wait, 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 wait. There's two issues here. There's, two, there's, there's what halacha says, and then there's what happens. And we know what happens. We know that doctors take advantage of their patients, and therapists take advantage of their patients, and lawyer. We, it happens when I say take advantage. I don't mean it was mutual, whatever. I'm not saying forced. I'm saying it happens. It happens, and it happens all the time. It happens. We're, we're not, again. I don't think anybody's going to sit here and say it doesn't happen. That never happened. We know it happens. If it happens, so Judah, so Torah, Torah starts before all this. Torah says, look. Torah is right, it's divine, divine law. It says, look, hey, here's the deal. This is who you are. You have these desires. You have the motive. You have the desire. It doesn't matter how good your relationship is, who, who you are, or, or who the other person is. It doesn't make a difference. You have this desire. You have this drive. Make sure you never put yourself, you never give yourself an opportunity for any funny business to happen. Don't be alone with somebody else. That's it. So easy. So elegant. So simple. Simple to, simple to follow through? No. Would it require modification for many professions and many professionals? Yeah. Is it impossible? No. How do you make it not? How do you make it um, not impossible? If you're a therapist, let's say, so you have it. So maybe you have it set where you tell your assistant or you tell somebody in the office that they should periodically walk into the room and not tell you, and then you'll be not likely to. Right? Would that work according to this definition? Doors are like there's a realistic chance somebody may enter. By the way, if I'm alone here in Chabad House and the door is unlocked and it's at night, does that help? Forget. <laughs> Ponds, you know this area. No, 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 no. no. Listen, to what I, this is my question. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? No, I'm not alone. I'm meeting with somebody. Right? I'm meeting with somebody. Oh, sorry, details. <laughs> I'm meeting with somebody, but it's at night, and but, but I leave the door unlocked. Is that going to help the issue of, of Yichud? Not necessarily. If, if I don't expect anybody to walk in, that's called opportunity. Got motive, got opportunity. What about if there are cats and homeless people living underneath the house? Does not count. 
does not count. We list the chance of somebody walking in, busting up the party, to be a deterrent that I don't deem it a proper opportunity unless that's 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 that that we're gonna leave as a separate as a as a, like an appendix. Huh? Have it during the day, door slightly ajar, and always have the opportunity for somebody to walk in. Otherwise, we can't meet now. That's it. Well, you just said that if you're here meeting with somebody alone, somebody else in Chabad, then what are your choices? D- don't meet with them at, then, at that point. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, sorry. That's the. With Leah, or we'll meet at the house, and Leah's right there. Yeah. The point is, the point is, here's the thing, here's the point. If we're honest with ourselves, we recognize it's an issue. Number one, it's a real issue. It happens. We all have, it doesn't matter how good the relationship is, there's a susceptibility to this. And the Torah, actually, if we're just straight up honest, the approach of Torah, which is just don't ever allow yourself the opportunity for something to happen, actually makes a heck of a lot of sense. If you never put yourself in that, not that it's easy, not that it doesn't require, as I said, modification, but if you never allow that to happen, the opportunity for that to happen, that's it. So, then how could it happen? That's the response. Does that make sense? Rabbi, what would you suggest, like, in the modern world? Yes. You can make a lot of modifications. Right. The reality is you and your colleague or boss or whoever still need to go to Chicago Okay, good. Good. Take major highways and always drive right next to somebody else. No, I'm. I'm. You take whatever steps. No, it's a good question. Sorry. First of all, if you fly, don't don't fly on a charter. No. First of all, you can be in the car with somebody else. You can be in a car. Otherwise, the whole dating scene would be shot. Think about it. You pick up a young right. I mean. I'm just okay. I'm just saying. No, you're allowed to be in a car, but again, don't lock the doors. Keep the they say keep the windows a little bit open, and again, don't pull off on on on, on like secluded. I don't pull yet. Yeah, it's fine. You're on a highway. What's gonna happen? You're on a highway again. It could happen, but it's not considered vulnerable. Because you could be driving fast, but if you're having an intimate conversation, I think that's where you pull the brakes. You have to make sure that your interaction stays. Oh, I'm with you. We're gonna talk. Good. Good, good, good. We're going to get there. We're going to get there, emotional infidelity. Good, we're going to get there. Again, the point is like this. The point is, number one, there are, there, are, there are solid rules that define it. Number two, there are movies, there's a little bit of fluctuation. If a person knows that, that they are still susceptible in a certain situation, then make sure you're not in that situation. If that's your, if you have a certain kryptonite, then make sure you're not, you're not consuming kryptonite. Make sure you're not in that situation. If that's your weakness, if you're, uh, you know, your conversation is your weakness, so then then, then you have to travel separately. The point is that Judaism responds to the reality. And the reality is that being alone and secluded with somebody else, that's not your spouse, is a terrible idea. <laughs> Straight up. It gives the opportunity for infidelity to occur. More than that, and here's the next point, more than just giving the opportunity to act on the motive that is naturally there, the, the, the drive and desire that's naturally there, it can actually fuel the desires to begin with. And this is stated by Maimonides in text number 6. This is a, this is a very important text. Um, about to take it away. Text 6, 125. There is no Torah prohibition that is more difficult for the majority of people to abstain from than sexual misconduct. Our sages said, when the Jews were commanded regarding forbidden sexual relations, 
They wept and received this mitzvah with grumbling and tears. Is that cr- in the classic? <laughs> oh no, he went there. Why every? Oh, we'll fast another day a year, just not. We've been. I. We had to say we will do, and then we will listen. Ah, okay, continue. <laughs> And by the way, that proof, what do you never find community? What does that prove? That there are exceptions? No. That proves that everyone has them, and in every community there are those who will act on them. But everyone's got them. Continue. Therefore, it is proper for people to master their desires and train themselves in a favor in an exceedingly holy manner, to save your thoughts and cultivate proper character traits in order to guard against sexual impropriety. And one should be careful with regard to the food, for it is the greatest trigger. Oh, you see that? It, huh? It's opportunity. Oh, that's what he says here. That's what was just added. By the way, what was just added? Before I said that you have the motive built in, you just make sure never have the opportunity, never be alone. If you're never alone with somebody, so then what's going to happen? How could you have something that happens if you're never alone with them? <laughs> Good luck. Right? You're on a... Oh, okay. So here's, again, we could get very creative, but let's not get that creative. But he says now something else, and that is, Yichud is not only the opportunity, but it fuels the motive. When you're alone with somebody, you know, next thing you know, you're working with somebody, you got a deadline, there's something, boom. You got the, uh, yeah, all that good stuff. Okay, now, when I say good stuff, obviously not good stuff, but that's... Thus is the nature of the human being. Let's talk about very briefly one other element of infidelity, which is emotional infidelity. There is a great quote, or a great text, text number seven, that we need to read um, uh, right now about emotional infidelity. By the way, we're going to define emotional infidelity as turning to somebody else for any number of emotional needs. In other words, you're connecting with somebody else that, that could be for, for emotional needs that could be provided by your spouse, but instead, there's, uh, it's, it, the direction is heading elsewhere. Or take it away. Text 7, 126. When we think affair, we think sex. Sex outside marriage can be a knife through a spouse's heart. But an emotional affair can be just as dangerous to a marriage and often a more complicated situation to remedy. When a spouse places his or her primary emotional needs in the hands of someone outside the marriage, it breaks the bond of marriage just as adultery does. You have only so much energy. If you're spending it with co-workers, then getting home and feeling too tired to spend any more on your spouse, that's emotional infidelity. You're effectively relocating vital marital energy into the hands of others. Forget about where it might end up. Even if you never touch this other person, you have still used that person to relate to, and in doing so, you relate away from your spouse. The first step in developing a happy marriage is to close our peripheral vision to others so that we can be fully focused on our mate. Countless people have told me that getting involved with members of the opposite sex isn't a problem for them because it would never lead to adultery. Sex is far from the only problem. You will simply be chipping away at your marriage every time you get that ping of excitement from an emotionally stimulating moment with someone of the opposite sex. It's dangerous to your marriage and not because it may lead to sex. Rather, it drains your marriage of the immense energy it needs to grow, the energy to flirt with each other, to be emotionally stimulated by a different point of view, to share the excitement with someone who wants to know who you are. 
when you place your emotional energies elsewhere without even realizing it, you don't offer your spouse the opportunity to provide you with that same ping of excitement you were looking for elsewhere. Do we agree with that? How articulate was that? Fantastic. Gary Newman. Have you seen Gary Newman on Oprah? Huh? Who's seen him? Yeah. Yeah, he wears a kippah. Yeah. Yeah. He lives in Florida. I may bring him out here to speak. He's fantastic. Yes. Um, and although there may not be the king of excitement, it seems like true it can be confusing. Like there's books that talk about there's still to be emotional leakage if yeah. you know if, if the woman's sharing everything with her female friends and male friends. That's true. I was thinking about that also. I was thinking about that also. There's definitely caution has to be taken. How much more so when you're dealing with somebody from the opposite sex? That's there's also. Another element to the excitement and the, you know, I'm sharing, I'm hearing a different point of view, I'm excited. You, a person just doesn't have the energy to do that again with their spouse. As he says, straight up. You're, you're, you're leaking all that energy, right? It's, emo, it's energy leakage to a different direction other than your spouse. And it's deadly. It's a knife through the heart, he says, right? So do we need to caution with friends? We, on, yeah, a person would have to self-regulate. Torah regulates where it is critical. It's critical with regards to physical um, infidelity, and it helps. The point here is that yichud, or the prohibition against yichud, which is seclusion, right? Intimate, not intimate, seclusion, whether intimate or not, with a member of the opposite sex. That prohibition helps not only to, to, to fend off Physical, uh, physical affair, but also emotional, an emotional affair, because the less time we're spent, we're spending alone, you know, one on one with somebody, even if it's never going to lead to anything else, we're still, we're still leaking the energy. Now, does that mean that we should now not have, you know, BFFs and like, you know, no more? No. Again, Torah doesn't regulate that. Certainly, if you're asking my advice. If you're asking the professionals' advice, I would imagine, and you said books talk about this, yeah, you got you got you got to regulate that as well. Is Torah going to regulate it? Not necessarily. Torah is going to regulate the stuff that that can lead to the big stuff. My point is, it's not only because it's leading to the big stuff. Even if it's never going to lead to the big stuff, this is also big stuff. Can that big stuff also happen in another context? Yeah. Make sense? All right, someone. All right. Um, Good. Good. Anybody ever hear the the concept of a work spouse? Work spouse? Yeah. Or work spouse, work husband, work wife? You've heard about that concept? Oh, come on. Text not, I'm not um, should we read it? Should we read it? I don't know. I don't want to read it. I don't want to read it because there's no time. 128 text 9 talks about a work an office spouse or a work spouse. He by raise of hands. First of all, not everyone knows the definition. But an office spouse, a work spouse, is somebody who you share a lot with at work. Like you look forward to going to work because you have. Who's had, who in their experience has had a work spouse? All right. So many of us have had this experience. Um, and by the way, if you work with your spouse, I don't think it counts as work spouse because that's like that's too literally work spouse. Okay. Anyway. The, then you're loud, yeah. That's that's okay. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, with your own spouse, yichud is kosher. No, not only kosher, it's the stuff of marriage. It's encouraged. It's all good. 
motive and opportunity. Sorry. <laughs> there's an app for that. No, we there's okay. So getting getting back to this idea. So a work spouse a point is according to Torah, a work spouse would be I'm not going to say forbidden, but we would have to take caution. That as you see the end of that text from Sue Schellenbarger or Barger on page 128, um, she writes there, but such relationships can easily cross the line into an emotional affair. So we got to be careful with these things. Many of us have it, and it could be very good, and it's good to vent and to rant and to feel somebody's listening to you and you share ideas and, and frustrations for the boss and sympathy and empathy and all that good stuff. But we got to be careful. We've got to be careful because these things can easily cross lines. Let's, let's deal with a few more topics, a few more ideas that are very important, and then we'll, we'll end up with one final idea. Ba- th- so, again, the, 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 I'm going to say it again. I know I've said it a bunch of times, but the, I just, just, we've got to have this idea clear. Torah recognizes and, sa- and teaches us again and again and again to not kid yourself about how powerful the drive for sex is. It's a real drive. It's a powerful drive. It's a, it's a reality. It's a re- we didn't cut it out. We didn't cut out half. It's not like, I only have eyes for it. doesn't exist. That doesn't. We have the powerful drive. So we have the, we have the motive in, in, my, in my problems. Make sure you don't have the opportunity. Make sure. So along these, so that's where Yichud comes in, as we said. Along these lines, along the lines of Yichud, there are other things, other restrictions that Jewish law puts forth to prevent physical and emotional infidelity leaks and energy leaks in our relationship. Amongst them are, and I think you'll probably recognize what I'm talking about. What do you think I'm talking about? What are the restrictions that you know about me? No touching. So it's not, it's right, no, no handshake. Hey, Rabbi, can't touch. You want to, you want touch? If you're female, uh, it's, we're channeling, was it 90s? MC Hammer? Yeah. 80s? Oi. Oi. Gewalt. Um, 80s was a great decade. Great decade. It was. Are you kidding me? G.I. Joe? Transformers? More than the Okay, anyway, classic decade. Let's get back. Let's, get, let's, let's refocus because now I'm all into 80s. Now I'm thinking about Care Bears and Cabbage Patch. My Little Pony and Friends. Okay, let's 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 bring it back. Let's bring it back. Huh? You're in a different 80s. That, those are my. That was a different 80s. Tell them your 80s. No, no, no. We go Viter. Big hair. We go Viter. Let's let's keep on trucking. Here's the point. So as you know, if 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 a woman wishes to shake my hand, I have to I have to respectfully decline. And my line is usually, well, my wife will shake your hand or give you a hug whenever you see her or whenever you meet her. Um, but I, I, I just can't. So it's in the same spirit of yichur, this idea of, of, of respecting, in a sense, or putting up boundaries around touch, kissing, touching, even gazing. You know, gazing, staring. Not like, like creepily. <laughs> but, but even admiringly. It's like, it's, it's you know... It, you don't check out somebody else. It's, the idea is to train, to put around the bound, to put the fences around to make sure that nothing goes where it shouldn't go. You put up a fence, no touching, no kissing, no smooching, no checking him or her out, etc. So, and again, even if none of that, it's not like, oh, we shook hands, the next thing you know, boom. The next thing you know, we're secluded in a room. Theater. Even if it's not going to go there, the point is, we want to... There's no, there's no like, uh, conversation like, Right. No, but the, the point is, well, not that I would know, but I'm saying, um, but here's the point. The point is that 
even if all it does is draw us at some point, on some level, away from our spouses, that's a physical or emotional energy leak, and we, we're in energy leak, and we're trying to avoid all of that. Okay, so let's get to the one final point. Let's okay. Here's the final point. Until now, we've looked at how creating appropriate boundaries in our relationships with those other than our spouse can help us in the, with the challenges of infidelity. We said it's great to to make your relationship stronger and 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 get. You know, fortify, get strong, have your, 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 your values set. It's fantastic. But together with that, you've got to put in some real, real boundaries. Torah says real boundaries. Don't be alone. Don't do, uh, real, create real boundaries. Let's look at another approach to staving off infidelity. And that is turning up the heat in our marriage to experience a taste of the forbidden with our own spouse. Effectively eliminating a big cause of infidelity. So here's the deal. The deal is that oftentimes, infidelity, I know we spoke about how when you, when you put a cause on it, so you're limiting it and you're trying to box it in, but we could say that one cause of infidelity is the allure of the forbidden. The allure of the forbidden, of that which is out of grasp. This is also a reality that, that Judaism recognizes. Judaism recognizes this, this, uh, this challenge and temptation. Let's take a look. Oh, this is great. Text 12. This is absolutely phenomenal. John, take it away. Text 12, 132. There's a general rule concerning material desires. Human beings desire that which they do not have. The more distant and elusive an enticement, the more powerful the temptation to obtain it. As our sages say concerning the pursuit of money, one who has 100 desires 200. We often see a handsome man committing a sin with an unattractive woman, or someone who has, a ta- who has tasty and healthful foods desiring simple and unwholesome foods. This is because a person considers insignificant that which he or she already has and desires that which is out of reach. The scriptures allegorically allude to this idea. Stolen waters are sweet and hidden bread is pleasant. Because they are stolen, they cannot be eaten in public, only in hiding, and therefore they are pleasant to the palate. It is for this reason that the temptation for the forbidden is so desirable. The very fact that it is forbidden makes it so desirable. Thus, the degree to which one is tempted by the forbidden directly corresponds to a person's piety. One who is more pious will have more powerful lusts and desires, insomuch as the forbidden is very much beyond his or her reason. We can leave the, the last paragraph aside for a second because it relates to a text, text or two that we skipped. The main point is the first three paragraphs. Does everyone agree with that? Yeah? Stolen waters are sweet, hidden bread is pleasant. Because they're, precisely because they're off limits, that makes it that much more exciting. The illicit is exciting. The forbidden is, wow, it's really super exciting. And he says, it doesn't matter whether the looks become irrelevant, the food becomes irrelevant, it's the lore of the forbidden. We're all on board with this? This explains the following Talmudic passage, text 13. Join, take it away. Kista.
<laughs> Make sense? <laughs> yes. Okay. So, and he doesn't explain what the pearl in the kiln is. Now, I'm uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> what? What do you say? I didn't hear. I don't know that I do. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't know that I want to. <laughs> Bring out my. <laughs> okay, Ra- anyway, Rashi has Rashi on on the page has uh, has a take on it. But let's you know what if Rav Chista wanted to say it in cryptic language, well, for right now, let's keep it cryptic language for a second. The point is, here's the point. His advice to his daughters are, well, how would you characterize the advice? Keep something hidden away. Yeah, tease him until he's tormented and can't take it anymore. Huh? That makes it exciting. And then, yeah. The point is, that fuels desire. The forbidden fuels desire. Because there's a fierce desire for the forbidden. And that also causes, once a person attains it, it also, it's a greater satisfaction. That's the sweetness of stolen waters. It's of attaining that which was, that which is forbidden. So, what's the point? Yes, but here's... Here's why. That, that's what he says in 14. People are naturally uninterested in things that they have and instead chase after things they do not and cannot have. So, what's the danger? He says it's a dangerous predicament. I'm kind of paraphrasing text 14. What's the problem? The problem is what we have and what's available to us, we don't appreciate and it's not exciting. That which is forbidden, we find exciting. So what's the problem with that? We're going to look maybe outside of our relationships. What's the antidote to that? That's it. How do you do that? Well, okay, there's many... I'm not, I'm not going to open that up to... But after, huh? All hands come down, and let me, let me present one, one, one angle on... One, let me present one, uh, one approach, and that is as follows. If there are... One, one way, and what I'm going to suggest now is that the laws of family purity... Mikvah, Tarat Meshbacha, Tarat Meshbacha, where husband and wife are forbidden to each other for nearly two weeks a month. My suggestion is, now it's a mitzvah, it's in the Torah, Torah doesn't need a reason or a defense or a logical explanation. It doesn't. It's, it's divine law and that's it. We, we do it because it's a mitzvah. But if we were to kind of say, hey, how does this mitzvah that's already there, how does it benefit our relationship? We might say, that this creates an element of the forbidden in a relationship because for a significant, a decent amount of time the intimacy is forbidden and it's illicit and it becomes stolen waters it becomes forbidden waters that are indeed sweet it keeps fuel, keeps the fuel, the fire alive and it keeps the forbidden inside the relationship itself as opposed to keeping everything within, as opposed to everything in the relationship being open and being available and having that allure and that, that, that drive for the forbidden happen outside of the relation. Does this make sense? I, I, I'm, I'm purposely moving quickly through this, not because the, of the topic, but because 
we're right, we're five minutes past the time. So I want to just present the idea. I hope the idea, this idea makes sense. I wish we had more time to expand on this idea, but I think this is you got the crux of the idea. So mikvah then, tar, the laws of Tara to Meshbacha, which are the two weeks, basically two weeks on, two weeks off, is a powerful tool that we have um, to enhance marriage, built into the to, to Jewish law. Um, instead of becoming stale and boring, intimacy is now the subject of prohibition, right? Instead of it being you know, what we're used to, it's now prohibited, it's illicit, forbidden, and that itself is a turn-on, that's very much desired, and it's sweeter. Um, so, the laws of family purity introduce the taste of forbidden and stolen waters into the marriage itself, no need to look elsewhere for that thrill and excitement. Alright, that makes sense? Good. Now, without even answering, good. Now, let's, uh, let's look back at our opening exercise, and we're going to conclude the class. At the beginning of the class, I asked the question on page 116. Other than sexual relations, what activities should be defined as intimate and should remain exclusively, exclusively between spouses? And all of you wrote answers, I mean, most of you wrote answers, and put them into the book on page 136. Um, I would like to suggest that the more activities are intimate and exclusive, the more the better. Marriage is that sacred space within which we connect exclusively with our spouse. That's the space. Why would we ever want to limit that space to be as small as possible? On the contrary, our focus should be to expand that sacred space of intimacy and exclusivity. And so the laws that we learned about today, the laws of Yichud, etc., help us do just that. They not only help defend our sacred space against infidelity, but they also expand it into new frontiers. My touch is reserved only for my spouse. My kiss is reserved only for my spouse. My loving gaze is reserved only for my spouse. My dance is only reserved for my spouse. What we're doing is we're expanding the space of our relationship. Instead of that being the space of everybody, everyone's in that space. And we're, we're, me and my spouse have only that tiny space, that one space. Now we have lots of space that is just us. We were expanding the marriage. Talking about marriage enhancement. How do you enhance your marriage? Expand your marriage. How do you define marriage? The stuff that you do with everyone else? That's your marriage? How's that your marriage? A touch? A kiss? You do that with everybody. Where's your marriage? Intimacy? Why limit it there? Expand your marriage. You've got to think big. Right? It's a wonderful thing. So don't look at these rules. Oh, I'm restricted. You're restricted. You're expanding your marriage. The more you cut out others, the wider, the broader your marriage is. A beautiful interpretation of Ani Ladodi Vidodi, Adodi Li Vani Lo. It's to say, you know, Ani Ladodi Vidodi Li, I am to my beloved. Text 15a, my beloved is mine and I am his. According to Rashi, you know what that means? That means that each one, what does it mean? My beloved is mine, I am his. We turn to each other oh, exclusively for what we need. We don't look elsewhere outside the marriage. We look to each other to provide exclusively. I am my beloved. What my beloved, I am. My beloved is mine, I am his, I am hers, whatever. We are the everything for the other. We've expanded the relationship to find what we need, physically, emotionally, and otherwise, with each other, not with others outside. We're reducing energy leaks, emotional leaks, physical leaks. We're reducing all of that. We're sealing off the relationship, expanding the relationship, and finding a place of intimacy and exclusivity that is indeed the bedrock of a happy, healthy, and everlasting marriage. So, on a practical level, my suggestion, and you know, this, is, this is my what I'm, what I'm offering, what I'm putting out there. Offer. This, is, this is my suggestion. 
is to cut out one area of contact with others outside your relationship. One. Choose one. Cut it out. That this is I'm expanding I'm expanding my marriage. This now will be in the it hasn't been until now, but from now on, this will be the this area, whatever it is of contact, and I don't mean literal contact, but either literal or physical or or or, or figurative contact is going to be exclusively reserved for my significant other. Expand your relationship. That's one suggestion. Consider keeping the laws of family purity mikvah. It's uh, it's definitely a big a big commitment. But in my opinion, it will do more for your relationship than anything that you can imagine. All right, next week, let's conclude. Next week, the topic is called Makeup or Breakup. Um, we'll be discussing what constitutes grounds for divorce according to Jewish law and how far ought one go to make the marriage work. We'll also be looking at whether another, another's marriage or divorce is anyone else's business. So join us next week. It's our grand finale. Uh, before you before you leave, we have with us Rebecca Kushner, who's going to speak with uh, who's from representing Atlanta Jewish Gene Screen. They're doing amazing work in our community in uh, helping prevent um, genetic diseases, and I'm, I'm sure Rebecca will will share with us what's going on. But this is something that's very important, necessary, whether it's relevant to you. Directly or relevant to, or not re- or not relevant to you directly. It's important to hear and then to understand what's going on, and also to be able to share it with others that it is immediately relevant to. Hi.